0: Well, guys, at the beginning of this year, we started up a series on worship. And uh, we kind of just started out by defining what is the word worship? How can we define what worship is? And we kind of came up with this real fancy definition, and this this is what we had, that worship is the inherent attitude of a renewed thought life. And we kind of then further broke that down by saying that a truly renewed thought life is seeing God for who he really is, and seeing us for who we really are. And when that happens, we have an attitude of worship. We then kind of broke that down even further into an even more basic definition. And the simple definition of worship is this, thinking great big thoughts about God. That really at its root is what worship is all about. And you know what? That's why the enemy is always trying to distract us from that. He wants us to think pretty low thoughts about God. He wants us to think that God isn't good or that he isn't loving and that he doesn't care about anything, especially you. And and the enemy does that to keep us from worshiping. He does not want us to worship God and everything in the world is bent on trying to keep you from doing exactly that. We then talked about, well, why is it that we have Sunday services? Why do we do this every week? And that's the week we interviewed Kirk, and he basically told us that listen, Sunday mornings are all about redirecting our minds to God. The whole week, I don't know if you're like me, but the whole week we can find our minds just drifting away to all sorts of different things. And on Sundays, it's a time where we can take to refocus our minds on God, to think about Him, to to It's basically a discipline that we do on a weekly basis to keep our minds focused on him so that more and more we do that throughout the week. So that's why we do the things we do here on Sunday mornings. That's why we sing the praise songs and we we go through the sermons and we, we take that time to worship. We then zeroed in on praising him. And we spent three weeks looking at the seven different postures of praise found in the Bible in the Hebrew language. And we spent time looking at each one, and then we spent time practicing each one. And I have to tell you, it's been a pretty special time uh, for me to be doing that with all of you. And so I just want to thank you guys for participating in that. Um, I, I think it was an awesome thing to be growing in our ability to praise and worship our God. So thank you. Well, I basically thought that our worship series would then be over. But in praying about what God would want me to do following this series, I felt like God wanted me to continue with this series and to really focus on different encounters of worship found specifically in the Gospels centered around Jesus. And I felt like he wants us to study those encounters and to learn from those encounters so that we can in turn have our own encounters of worship with Jesus as well. And so that's what we're gonna be doing all the way up to Easter, Easter, okay? So here we go. And today, what we're going to be talking about is the encounter of worship that the wise men had with baby Jesus, okay? So we're going to be dealing with that. And to get into today's story, we have to back all the way up to a book in the Old Testament by the name of Daniel. And Daniel's written about a guy who was, when he was a young boy in Israel, the Babylonians came in, conquered Israel, destroyed Israel, and they took captive a bunch of the young boys with them back to Babylon, Daniel was one of those boys, just a young kid. But Daniel was an incredibly wise young man, incredibly brilliant. God was with him and this Daniel loved God. I mean, he worshiped God and he was not gonna be swayed from that. Well, naturally, Daniel kind of climbed the ranks in this Babylonian empire and the ones after that. I mean, he was pretty up there in the, you know, the order of the court and order with the, with the king, and he was, he was just a big dog when it came to that. And if you read the book of Daniel, you'll see that Daniel was an incredibly godly guy, an incredibly noble and godly guy. Well, one time while praying, Daniel was praying, God answered Daniel's prayer by sending an angel by the name of Gabriel to come and give him insight into the future. And I don't know about you, but I think that's awesome. Can you imagine praying, God, I just want to ask you, you know, what do we do about this? An angel's up in front of you. Well, Luke, it's going to be like this. That'd be awesome. That's the kind of relationship Daniel had with God. It was incredible. Well, this angel shows up and basically explains to Daniel how and when certain things were going to happen. Let me show you the passage. Daniel 9 says, Know and understand this. This is Gabriel talking, the angel talking. He says, From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay? Now I know this verse sounds a little confusing, but... Um, and we don't have time to totally unpack it, but just let's just take a few minutes to at least understand a couple things. Gabriel is saying, listen, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Okay? Let's just stop there for a second. Gabriel is saying something very, very important here. He's saying from the point the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is made, To the point, who shows up on the scene? Yeah, the anointed one, Jesus. Another word for the anointed one in the Greek is Christ. So when Christ shows up on the scene, that's what Gabriel is telling us. So Gabriel is basically telling Daniel the exact time when Christ, who is the ruler, will show up and present himself as king to the nation of Israel. This is a huge prophecy. And it's very specific. Look at the specificity of it. It's a tough word. <laughs> From the issuing of the decree to, the re- to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, I know that sounds a little weird and what, what, is, what is Dana talking about or what is Gabriel talking about? Basically put... It's each seven is seven years. So seven times seven is 49 years. 62 times seven is 334 years. You add those together, we get 483 years. Using the old ancient calendar that the Babylonians would have used, this would have been a total of 173,880 days. Okay? So in effect, Gabriel told Daniel that the interval between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the presentation of the Messiah as king would be 173,880 days. Now here's where it gets cool. The decree to restore and build Jerusalem was given by a man, Artaxerxes Logomenus, on March 14, 445 B.C. Now if you stop counting forward from that day, 173,880 days, making sure you account for leap years and using the old calendar, you come to April 6, 32 AD. Guess what day that was? It was the day that Jesus rode in on a donkey and they laid the palm branches on the ground and they worshipped him as king. He presented himself as the king of Israel, the anointed one, the ruler. That prophecy given to Daniel was perfect down to the day. Now, on Palm Sunday, we're going to tear that story apart further and look at all the cool stuff surrounding it. But for now, all I want you to see is that Daniel knew that the anointed one was coming. The ruler was coming at this specific time. The king was on his way, and Daniel knew it. He knew when this king could be expected to show up on the scene. All they needed to do was wait for the issuing of this de- decree, and then the countdown could start to happen. Now, why do I focus on that? Here's why. Has anyone ever heard of a group by the name of the Magi? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I'm gonna drink some water. There, sound like I'm a teenager again. Yeah, the, the Magi were we we call and often we call them the wise men. But the Greek word was the, the, the magi, and uh, um, which magi is short for magicians. Now, just a brief little word on these magicians. When we think of the word magicians, we think of someone who pulls out a deck of cards and says, all right, pick a card, all right, and now put it back in the deck, and, and then like we got this card, and blah, blah, blah. Or we pull a dove out of our pocket, and the rabbit runs out of the bottom of our pants or whatever, and we think, that's awesome. Well, magicians were actually... They did do pretty amazing things like that, but it wasn't just little tricks. These magicians were actually tapping into the spiritual world and through the demonic realm to try to get power to be able to do stuff like that. Like, for instance, you remember when Moses showed up to the Pharaoh and he threw his staff down on the ground and turned into, into a snake? Well, the other magi, the magicians, they threw down their staff and it turned into snakes as well. How did they do that? Through the power of these demonic spirits, okay? So these magicians were tapping into the spiritual world to do these things to gain insight in the future, all to try to help the king in that nation, okay? Well, these ancient magi were pretty high up in the governments of those days, in the ancient, you know, the ancient worlds. They were high up in government positions, now, what does that have to do with us and our story today? Well, it has to do with Daniel. Not sure if you knew this or not, but one of the titles given to Daniel was none other than the chief of the magi. He was the chief of the magicians. Let me show you in Daniel 5. Talking about Daniel here, it says, "This There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. So let's just stop for a second and think about this. Daniel was appointed to be the chief of the magicians, the chief of the enchanters and astrologers and diviners. He was the head of it. He was the leading council, the leader And these guys, they studied the stars, they studied the unseen realm, they studied the interpretation of dreams, they studied all sorts of things in hope that what they knew would somehow benefit the king, okay? Now think about this. Being that Daniel was an incredible man of God, an incredible, noble, devout follower of Yahweh, the Most High God, the God of Israel, being that he was the leader, the head of all these areas, as leader, tell me third service, do you not think that he would instruct and teach those under him the things that he himself was learning from God? Absolutely. Do you not think that he would be teaching these men the best way to interpret the stars and their movements and how to best interpret the dreams by using the power of the Most High God? Of course he did. I mean, as I said before, here's a guy when he prays, God sends angels to come talk to him and give him the answers. Here's a guy that God gives interpretations of dreams when he simply asks God. Here's a guy that understood mysteries that no one knew simply because of his relationship with God. So yeah, I'm sure that Daniel was using his position of authority to teach and to train and to lead other people below him and point them to the one true God. That's what a leader does. And it's my theory that Daniel had done such a great job of leading these magi that many of these magicians were followers of the one true God. And they relied on his power to do the work that they were being asked to do. Well, guys, if that's true, let me ask you something. Do you think Daniel would have told them about this prophecy of a coming ruler? Absolutely he would have. Of course he would have. I'm sure he would have said, guys, listen, an angel came and talked to me and he said, from the issuing of this decree, if we count down 173,880 days, that's when the king, the, the ruler is gonna show up and present himself as the king of Israel. That's when that's gonna happen. So I want you guys to pay attention to that. I want you to write that down because when we're dead in God, we want the magi to be following this and paying attention to this to when he shows up. In fact, Daniel, as the head of the astrologers, those who study the stars, I'd have no doubt that Daniel would have taught these guys to not only be paying attention to the degrees and the countdowns, but also paying attention to them and teaching them to look to the heavens for the fulfillment of this prophecy. An event this big, surely God would reveal it and mark it out in the heavens. So you need to pay attention for it. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, why would Daniel tell them to look into the heavens for the revealing of this? Well, simply put, here it is. Daniel knew that the heavens declare the glory of God. Daniel knew that the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And Daniel knew that day after day, they pour forth what? Speech. And night after night, they display what? Knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. And their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And Daniel knew that. And Daniel also knew that there's no speech or language where the voice of these heavens cannot be heard. They proclaim day and night and go out all over the earth and they proclaim the knowledge of God. And they proclaim it to anyone and everyone if they're wanting to pay attention and listen to hear it. So I'm sure that Daniel was teaching them to pay attention and listen to what knowledge the heavens were pouring forth. Well, guess what, guys? Apparently, they were paying attention and listening because we see hundreds of years later something pretty remarkable happens. Let me read it to you, and it's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, notice the time frame, it's after Jesus was born, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. All right, just want to stop for a second do a little brief history lesson. When did the wise men show up on the scene? When do we naturally think? Yeah, on Christmas Day. We see the little, what are they called? Nativity scenes where the wise men are sitting there and they're all gathered there. But truth be told, the wise men didn't show up on the night Jesus was born. They showed up quite a bit later, maybe up even up to two years later. So when we're reading the story, realize that it's not the night Jesus was born. And I'll show you some clues later as to why we believe that. Okay? So here, these wise men, they show up in Jerusalem. And I don't know if you notice this or not, but you know what this tells me? It tells me that these guys were thinking about this anointed one's coming. He was on their mind. I mean, they show up in Jerusalem and say, where is, this, where is this king that was born? I mean, we, we saw a star, where is he? He was on their mind. They were looking for him. I personally don't think that one of the magi came out on his patio at night having a cigarette and drinking drink like, hey, check out the star in the sky. Wow. I see what that's all about, and goes back and says, ah, it's a king star, let's go figure that out. No, they were looking for it, they were waiting for it, they were thinking about it, and when the star showed up, there went, boom, there it is. That's what we've been waiting for. Now, I'll bet this was the topic of their conversation for maybe years up to this event. I'm sure they were talking about, they're like, hey, this countdown is happening. We're getting like 32, 33 years away from this countdown. I mean, this guy, this king has to be born soon. Let's keep looking for it. Keep looking for it. And because they were looking in the heavens waiting for it, they were ready for it when it happened. And guys, I just want to say, you know, true worshipers, they're constantly thinking about the one who they worship. They just are. It's it's a little bit like boyfriends and girlfriends. You know how they often say, "Oh, she just worships her boyfriend." And and that's how it is. I mean, cuz they're always saying, I remember when I was in Bible school, I used to work with this girl and we travel back and forth from work and uh, she just all she talked about was her boyfriend. Drove me nuts. she's just like, oh yeah, my boyfriend, he's just so awesome, he's so good looking, he's awesome, he called me today, and he bought a new truck, it's like a 4x4 truck, I mean, I know yours isn't 4x4, but his is a 4x4, and he's got a shirt just like that, oh my word, I just saw a picture of him, but he's a lot bigger and stronger, and he fills it out more, but he's got a shirt (laughs) like that, and and he's got this really good job, and he makes a lot of money, and oh, I just love it, and I was just like, dude, would you shut up, and I'll just, all you talk about is his boyfriend, well, that's what That's what worship is. I mean, with true worshipers, that's all they think about is the one they're worshiping. Well, guys, these magi had to have been thinking about this coming king, and this star simply gave them the go-ahead. It was like, boom, there it is, guys. Let's go. I mean, look back at the passage here. Pay attention to their assuredness. They show up on the scene. They say, hey, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east, and we've come to worship him. They didn't show up and say, hey guys, uh, by any chance, do you know of any king that's been born? I mean, we're just kind of thinking, we saw this star, we're like hoping, we don't know, but maybe it's a king was born, do you know of anything? No, they're like, where's the king? We saw a star, we're coming to worship him. This king was constantly on their mind. And you know what I think, listen to me here, you know what I think? I would bet that they probably just assumed that the nation of Israel had been looking for it too. I mean, he was the king of the Jews. You would think that the Jews would certainly be ready for this, planning for this, expecting this, thinking about this. But as you and I both know, they weren't. They didn't know anything about it. The very nation by which Jesus came into the world Didn't even know he came. And you want to know why? Because they weren't looking for him. They weren't thinking about him. He wasn't even on their minds. Think about that for a second. I wonder how much he's on our minds. How often through the course of our day do we even think about him? Where we allow our minds to dwell on him. How often do we just daydream about him? and meditate on him or talk to him? How often does that happen? Would we look more like the Magi or would we look more like the nation of Israel? Because it's a question we need to ask ourselves because true worshipers think about the one they're worshiping all the time. He's on their mind all the time. Now, not only were the Magi thinking about him, they were willing to do whatever necessary to go see him. And so they headed out across great distances to find this king that was born so that they could worship him. And what I see from that, guys, is that, you know what, true worshipers have a strong desire to be with the one they're worshiping. You know, as I pondered these magi in the sacrifice that they made to come and see this baby king that was born, I mean, it kind of blows me away. Imagine the toll of this trip. Assuming that they were coming from Babylon, which most Bible scholars believe that's where the Magi would have come from was Babylon, that was a 1,700 mile trip. 1,700 miles. This isn't a quick trip to Dousman. This is a very long trip. And imagine the work and the planning and the money and the resources it would have taken to make this trip. Imagine the danger of the trip. Thieves and robbers and bandits Along the way, imagine the forces of nature, the sandstorms, the storms, whatever it might be. Imagine going to a foreign nation that are enemies of your nation. This is a big deal. And yet they made the trip because they wanted to be with the one who they were going to worship. And it didn't matter if it was 1,700 miles, they were going Not sure if you've ever thought about this before, but check this out. Let me show you what happens in Jerusalem. The Magi are walking around. They show up in Jerusalem. They're walking around and saying, hey, do you know where this king is born? We've seen a star. We're coming to worship him. Do you know where this king is born? We saw a star. We're coming to worship him. And it caused this this quite a stir in Jerusalem. Everybody's all going, what's going on? All these, you know, these Magi are showing up. I'm sure it wasn't just three. I'm sure it was a whole entourage of them. They're showing up and they're asking these questions. Well, Herod gets kind of shook up, and so he gets all the chief priests and all the teachers of the law, and he says, "Hey, guys, is there? I mean, does, do the scriptures tell us where he's born?" And the teachers of the law they say, "Yeah, let me show you. You want to know where he's born? In Bethlehem, in Judea," they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You know what's crazy? They know exactly where he is to be born. Isn't that crazy? And, and this makes it even more crazier because here's another way we could put it. It's like they're saying, hey, you want to know where he's born? I'll tell you where he's born. Six miles away in the town of Bethlehem. That's less distance than from here to Dousman. Only six miles away, the king of Israel has been born. Now tell me, tell me, guys. Who besides the wise men from Jerusalem went to go see and worship the anointed one? Who, who joined the wise men and said, man, I want to go see this king? Who joined him? Anybody? This wasn't the same night as Jesus' birth. This might be two years ago. How many people went with him? Zero. Zero. No one. We aren't told of one single person who left Jerusalem to go see Jesus. They couldn't even travel six miles to go see the most important birth of all human history. Guys, I, I don't know about you, but if wise men showed up in our town and were saying, hey, listen, we saw his star, he was, he was born, where was he born? And they say, hey, in Dousman, wouldn't you and I say, you know what, at least I'm gonna go check it out. Because this is a big deal. But no one went. Just the wise men. The magi had traveled 1,700 miles and the people of Jerusalem couldn't travel six. Apparently being with the king of the universe wasn't high on their list. It's a pretty sobering thought. And before we get too judgmental of them, we need to hold ourselves up in the mirror as well. Sometimes I wonder how badly we want to be with God. I know that He's always with us, and we're told that over and over in Scripture, but you know what I mean? The actual time of saying, God, I want to spend time with you, just you and me. How bad do we actually want it? Because I feel like these magi sometimes put us to shame. We find it hard to get up in the morning to spend time with God. The alarm goes off. We're like, oh, I'm so tired. God, I think you understand when we hit the snooze. At night, before we go to bed, we'd rather watch TV than spend time with God. We're too busy. We have too many things going on. I mean, you name it, we have the excuses. We can't take 30 minutes out of our day to sit down and be with him to worship him. Unfortunately, we're more like the nation, the, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, than we are the Magi. They wanted to be with him. And guys, true worshipers have this strong desire to be with the one they're worshiping. And they'll do anything to make it happen, whether it's six miles or 1,700 miles. Let's keep reading verse nine. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they'd seen in the east went up ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the, what, house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Now let's just back up and let's address that for a second. Remember I told you how we feel like the wise men came at a different time later, not on the night Jesus was born? Here's why. Where was Jesus born? Somebody just say it louder. I don't know. Okay, probably a stable or cave, somewhere where animals were because Jesus was placed in a manger, which is a feeding trough. So they were not in an inn. They were not in a motel or hotel. They were not in a house. But this verse tells us what? They came to the house. So Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus now were in a house. So this is a different time period. Not only that, another clue that's given to us in the Greek is that word for child isn't an infant, as a, like a little newborn baby. It's a different Greek word. It means a, a young, it can be an infant child up to a young adolescent. Okay, it can be anywhere in between there. Now, most scholars believe that Jesus was around the two-year mark. Anybody want to guess why? When Herod killed all the babies, how old were the babies that he told him to have killed? Two years and younger. So scholars believe that Jesus was in that two-year mark. So anyways, that's why we believe that the wise men came at a later time rather than the night Jesus was born. But anyways, after traveling 1,700 miles through heat and cold and sandstorms and danger and you name it, they finally reach the one they came to worship. They finally see the child and they behold the king the promised anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, that they were told about for 500 years. They saw Jesus, and what did they do? They bowed down and what? Worshipped him. They were in the presence of a true king, in the presence of the king of the universe. Now I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have been at that that would have been one heck of a worship service can you imagine guys i don't think it was just three wise men or three magi i think there was an entourage of these people that showed up and when they saw jesus they got off their camels or horses or whatever then they fell to the ground and they worshiped him and maybe i try to imagine things too much but i'm you know a 2 year old can walk right so if jesus 2 year old stand at the doorway you know maybe yeah. You know, he's probably wondering, what, what is this? You know, and Mary realizes what's going on, and they worship him. But what I want us to see is notice what they brought. It says, from out of their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Guys, let me just tell you something. These are not some weenie little gifts. These were incredibly precious gifts. These were not the kind of gifts that you want to use for your little white elephant gifts. Has anybody ever done white elephant gifts? Yeah, yeah, you do it at staff parties. Our, our staff does a white elephant every Christmas time. And when I pick my white elephant gifts, I just kind of walk through my house and say, I don't want this basket. I don't want this thing. This is stupid. This is dumb. I'll take this. I remember one Christmas, it was awesome. My son had done a little uh, science project in a jar that was a big failure. And it was just filled with gravel and frozen ice and everything. And I'm like, this will make a good gift. I'll use this. And Doug Harper got it, so it's a special little thing for him. But those weren't those kind of gifts. These were amazing gifts. They were precious. They were costly. They were their best. And I want us to learn something from this because this is big. True worshipers bring their best to the one they're worshiping, they bring their best, they don't bring their leftovers they they don't come half-heartedly, they give their all. They give their absolute best. Let me ask you something. When you come to your king to worship him, do you give him your best? When you're at work each day, do you realize that your work can be offered to God as worship and do you give him your best? Or do you sloppily just get by? When God tells you to be generous to someone who's in need, do you just pull out a few crumpled dollars in your pocket and give it to them, or do you generously give out of your resources? When you're coming here Sunday mornings to praise God, to come to a praise and worship service, do you come ready to show up and give it your all? Or do you just show up to put in your time and say, hey, I went to church and my conscience feels a lot better. You see my point? The Magi gave him their best. And true worshipers give God their best. True worshipers think about God often. And they want to be with God. And they give God their absolute best. And why still my prayer is that this is the kind of people we would become in this year of 2018 that we might become true worshipers. That we might worship God in this way like the Magi did. Amen? So guys, this this right here is the first time in Scripture where we see an encounter of worship with Jesus. Now, I realize the shepherds showed up the night he was born, but Scripture doesn't say they worshiped him. I'm assuming they did, but it doesn't say it. It just said they went to go see it. This is the first time it's mentioned in Scripture that they worshiped Jesus. And there would be many more, but this was his first. And it was 500 years in the making. And these magi, they did it right. They worshiped Jesus for the king that he was. And Whitestone, I want us to learn from their example so that we begin to worship Jesus for the king that he is as well. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this story. I thank you for the example of the Magi and and just the power of their example of, of being true worshipers, of just always thinking about you and wanting to be with you and bringing their best. God, may we become those kind of worshipers. May this year, may the men and women and boys and girls of Wystone become People who, they just can't stop thinking about you. And they just, they want to be with you at all times. And they want to give you their best. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.